welcome, Neil. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend, sir? Uh, Solidarity with all of the Chicago uh, teachers uh, on strike, except the ones who didn't write me back. (laughs) I see you, housing committee. (laughs) This weekend, uh, I worked at the office on Saturday morning during the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of last week's This Is Hell in Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. And uh, myself and my non-spouse celebrated our lack of a wedding anniversary for the umpteenth time, but a lingering problem from the schedule change here at This Is Hell is my non-wife has for almost every weekend since the summer of 1996, woke up on Saturday mornings and listened to This Is Hell. Yes, a weekly ritual for someone who tells me to shut up and that I talk too much is actually listening to me for four straight, completely uninterrupted hours every Saturday morning. So I'm starting to figure out why she thinks I talk too much. It's because every Saturday morning I lecture to her for four straight hours. So being home on Saturday mornings is taking some getting used to for me because despite doing radio since I was 15 years old, I am incredibly self-conscious about hearing my own voice or listening to my own shows, which I am certain my girly would doubt, as according to her, I talk all of the freaking time. This is hell. Prove me wrong. Please prove me wrong by emailing chuck at thisishell.com because I'm getting kind of desperate here and I don't want to fall for the right-wing conspiracy of futility and despair surrendering to the status quo and exaggerating the true grasp on power of the 1% of the 1%. These these taglines are getting really, really wordy. This week on This Is Hell, squatting. I know it's early and you probably haven't stretched yet, but we're doing squats this week. But not the kind of squats that are good for your personal health, the kind of squats that can bring whole communities together, introducing new ways of living, revealing and exploiting the fissures in capitalisms and financializations, commodification of everything, including the basic necessities of life. Yes, we start this week by talking about the kind of squatting that is an increasingly growing movement across Europe, with squatters occupying abandoned buildings to experiment with social conditions that aggressively and directly challenge the crisis in housing caused by the market. We'll learn all about squatting squats and the squatting movement sweeping Europe when we speak with sociologist Miguel A. Martinez, author of Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Miguel is professor of sociology at the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University in Sweden. Since 2009, Miguel has been a member of the Activist Research Network 
S-Q-E-K, which stands for Squatting Everywhere Collective. We'll also get an update on what is happening in Turkey when we have the return of political scientist, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast, who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. This will be Max's fifth appearance on This Is Hell. You may remember that Max was arrested, detained, and imprisoned on political charges last year, only to have all charges dropped last month. So we'll talk to Matt not only about what is happening on the border, but get caught up on his legal status. And now with Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan saying he wants nuclear weapons, it's probably a really good time to find out just what the hell is happening in Turkey. You can follow Max on Twitter, and you should with everything that's going on in Turkey, at Max Zirngast, that's Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. Then a few weeks ago, we discussed evangelicalism and discovered to nobody's great surprise that evangelicalism is a religious rationalization for being a dick. This week, we return to evangelicalism, but a worse kind of evangelicalism, the kind of evangelicalism that wants to destroy us, the kind that is becoming more and more dangerous as its numbers dwindle. The kind of evangelicalism that is based on fantasy and the desire to not feel shame, because who wants to feel shame? In other words, the kind of evangelicalism that encourages shamelessness. And that kind of evangelicalism has got the super scary name of white evangelicalism, which also is behind climate change, racism, misogyny. You name the evil and white evangelicalism is genuflecting to its horror. We'll follow up our conversation from a few weeks ago with someone who was raised evangelical, Adam Kotzko, who recently wrote the article at N Plus One magazine, The Evangelical Mind, by speaking with another person who was raised as an evangelical, religious scholar Tad DeLay, author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And thanks to Calvin for sending Tad as a guest suggestion. If you have a suggestion for a guest or topic to be discussed here on This Is Hell, send them to me at chuck at thisishell.com. This Is Hell is completely listener-supported in many ways, including some of the very best ideas we've ever had for guests and subjects to cover here on the show. So thank you again, Calvin. Alex, uh, we've booked Miguel, we've booked Max, we've booked Tad. Anybody else yet? Have you booked any more guests other than that up to this point? Yeah, we got to figure out what's going on for that 3 p.m. slot tomorrow. Of course, during our final hour of this week's show, uh, we'll have a moment of truth, a moment of truth with our regular correspondent, Jeff Dorchin. We'll also have Rotten History. Uh, we'll share what you're writing to us uh, and share that with our listening audience. And we got an amazing compliment this week that made me tear up. So thanks to Rennie. We'll be reading that later on this week's show. We'll have the question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our bonus hour of This Is Hell available only by subscribing to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we want to thank you for everything you do for This Is Hell as well as tell you what's happening on next week's show. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table. This is hell. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is chili cheese toast. In the spectacularly headlined headlined story, hangover helper colon chili cheese toast at the website of the UCLA newspaper The Daily Bruin, music and fine arts editor Brooke Kuzich is her recipe for chili cheese toast, which she says is inspired by one in Lauren Shockey's new cookbook, Hangover Helper. Maybe she should talk to Lauren Shockey about this. <laughs> uh, Brooke says it's a super simple and super hearty and super easy to make, which makes it all super. The ingredients are onion, cilantro, jalapenos, turmeric, a couple kinds of cheese, and of course, bread and butter. 
After dicing, chopping, and slicing up the fresh ingredients, grate cheese on top and sprinkle on a bit of turmeric, then butter the bread, put it in the toaster oven for five minutes with the cheese and fresh ingredient mixture on top, let cool and eat. It makes this week's hangover cure super simple, super hearty, super simple to make chili cheese toast. You are listening to God's favorite show. This is hell. I have been trying to wrap my mind around trying to figure out why the hell they allowed Greta Thunberg to speak at the UN conference on climate change. Ever since I saw her being introduced by a beaming, smiling MC whose every word in their introduction of Greta oozed with a feeling of, isn't Greta just adorable, instead of shaking with a pending feeling of doom that comes with the looming threat of being scolded for ruining the planet by a child. Apparently, when Greta's parents' generation was asked what about the children, their answer was a collective, who? Oh, them? Yeah. Screw them. And if anything goes wrong, it's not our fault. So they better not complain about how we destroyed any opportunity they ever had of enjoying a normal life without destructive climate change or resurgence of fascism and nationalism, all combined with more and more race and gender-based hate and fear. Sorry, kids, but we had a blast, and now it's time for you to clean up after us as we go off into the great beyond, where we'll probably screw that up for you, too. I know. Greta's parents' generation is pretty chatty. So, why even allow Greta to speak? Wasn't the host fully aware, wasn't the audience fully aware that this kid was about to go off and change the host and her, charge the host and her age group of being awful human beings who have brought about a climate apocalypse and you old farts still refuse to do a damn thing about it as every year these clueless freaks continue to burn more and more fossil fuels without a care in the world. Greta's parents' generation could literally not care less about Greta or any of their kids, and the climate change science, to prove it, has gone unchanged for 40 years, which is about the age of Greta's parents, and that is no coincidence. With the inevitable heart-wrenching tirade you'd likely get from a kid whose future is nearly doomed, who blames the audience to whom she will speak, and is herself autistic, adding to that audience's compassion, why give Greta a platform? And then why did the establishment corporate media, both public and privately owned, give Greta's speech so much coverage, so much airtime, when they've been doing such a great job ignoring global warming and climate change? Granted, the media didn't talk endlessly about Greta or climate change hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, like they did with Russiagate, or are doing now with Trump's impeachment. After all, the destruction of the planet we live on making it so tens of millions of people will die and tens of millions more will flee from their coastal homes, that's hardly as important as speculating over evidence and closed investigations while getting dangerously close to the realm of conspiracy theorizing. The market doesn't care about climate change because they don't care about life on Earth, only how they can profit from it. Governments clearly don't care about addressing climate change. International institutions and organizations they created and support clearly don't care about global warming because they're still producing fossil fuels annually at record rates, still subsidizing fossil fuels at a far higher rate than they are alternative energy resources, even after it has been proven that wind power is not only clean and sustainable, but can be profitable without subsidies, as is being proven off the shores of Scotland. No nation or group of nations gives a damn about climate change. The media would rather wallow in the celebrity nature of politics 
then actually report on a globe-threatening disaster that is about to cause a societal shift that will change life on this planet as we know it. That's when it hit me. That's why they allowed Greta to talk. They've turned her into a celebrity. She's a celebrity. She's an individual. The UN didn't ask Jem Bendel, who told us on our show back in April that near-term climate change-induced societal collapses imminent. And Jem is a sustainability scholar who believes sustainability is no longer sustainable, no longer possible. Nor did they invite the leaders of Extinction Rebellion like Claire Farrell, who was on our show at the beginning of this year and co-founded XR, a group that Jem is now heavily involved with due to their aggressive, confrontational, obstructive protest strategies. They're having a great deal of success globally. In other words, the UN is not about to invite those who would bring a collective message filled with political power of fighting climate change. I'm not claiming Greta is some self-declared hyper-individualist neoliberal. I'm saying the reason the UN, the reason the elites who were at this climate change conference, the reason they allowed her to perform for them is because she is not a threat. Once Greta is made into an individual face of a movement, she started by herself an action protest that the MC stresses Greta enacted so many times alone sitting in front of the Swedish parliament Greta standing outside protesting with nobody else around that's the image the host wanted you to have in your mind while listening to this one lone girl go off once Greta is turned celebrity by the media industry due to no fault of her own whatever power she has is contained limited by the parameters set upon her by the media narrative, which became such a sweet autistic girl that's so cute that she's against climate change. It really pulls at your heartstrings. And she's doing it all by herself. What the audience she scolded is frightened of more than anything is the power that can be attained and unleashed via politics that are collectively employed against the people perceived to have a, have a firm grasp on power, while in reality that grip is as frail and weak as Charlton Heston's. And I'm pretty sure he's dead. International institutions and organizations do everything they can to erase politics from what they do. They come up with metrics like the Consumer Price Index, as we recently learned from Andrea Ballestero when we talked to her about her book that investigates the idea of water as a right or a commodity. Measurements like the CPI are then put in place to make policy decisions. Decisions policymakers pass off as objective as nothing more than what the equation, what the numbers insist we do. It's not political, they swear. How can numbers be political? Well, because they do not come out of thin air, nor were they handed down by some almighty, all-knowing being. Numbers are creations of humans, just like equations. Therefore, all these formulas for determining who gets what are, in fact, political and powerful and being used against the majority of the world so the 1% of the 1% can enjoy their luxurious lives. That's why the rich, that's why the people with real power 
That's why conservatives from any party, but especially the right and the farthest of right, and late-night comedians and hacks of all sorts deride politicians and politics. Whether they know it or not, and I'm guessing most know it, they are erasing politics. They are taking the power people have to improve their lives and make those lives less violent, less oppressed, less depressed, less out of our control and controlled by others, less anxious, less busy all the freaking time. When they use politicians as punching bags, what they are beating is the collective power of the people into submission. That's the goal of conservatism, of the right, of fascism. Conservatives believes that believe that if you somehow, and I don't know how, eliminate politics from everything, we will be at some natural state of perfection. That's why conservatism does everything it can to make politics invisible, to not allow you to realize that you are the victim of their collective actions and political power. Conservatism demands you accept the way things are as normal and good enough, in fact, better than they've ever been. And they insist change of any kind is scary and the people who want change are frightening. Conservatism demonizes politicians and trivializes politics to gut politics of its real power that challenges the status quo while using their own political power, a power they loathe when used by their opponents, to prop up their conservative elitist establishment. President Trump is only seen as an individual, with Democrats believing everything will be better when he is out of office, without recognizing that nearly every one of his policies is part of the Republican Party platform, which may actually be worse than Trump himself. Even in Trump, conservatism makes the power of the people and how it is being implemented to make far-right changes invisible, unseen by most critics, with Trumpism considered as nothing more than a single madman's ravings erasing the power of politics from his persona. That's why Greta Thunberg was allowed to speak at the UN, because it was another chance for the elites to pretend like they cared, to give the masses the catharsis they needed, but without the fear of change. After all, she's just a little girl sitting all by herself, protesting, which is adorable. And this is hell. Tomorrow I'll tell you how I totally get hating politics and politicians. It's easy to fall for the conservative trap. And I'll tell you why I often do. But I shouldn't and you shouldn't either. Or at least I don't think you should. I know I shouldn't. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Coming up, we are introduced to the squatting movement that seems to be sweeping through abandoned buildings across Europe. We'll get an update on what is happening in Turkey and the nation move toward fascism, and we revisit evangelicals, and this time we focus on white evangelicals and how they want to destroy us all. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. We'll have rotten history, listener feedback, what we've been up to on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and all sorts of other stuff. Live from the United States where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Squatting is a movement across you... Squatting is a movement across Europe, but it's far more than desperate homeless people seeking only shelter. It's a lot more than that. And here to tell us about squatting and squats and to find out what they're all about, sociologist Miguel A. Martinez is author of Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Welcome to This Is How, Miguel. 
Hey, thank you. It's great to have you on the show, Miguel. This is a fascinating book. You write that in 1989, I entered a squat for the first time. I was an undergraduate university student by then, very curious and enthusiastic about sociology but also about leftist and libertarian politics. Minwesa, as the squat was named, intrigued me from the very beginning. It was located in the city center of Madrid, next to the picturesque street market at the Rastro I used to visit frequently on Sundays. If it was in such a beautiful location, why wasn't this abandoned place that was a squat, why wasn't it inhabited? What does that reveal to us about the squatting movement when this beautiful place in uh, Madrid would be abandoned? Well, at that time, there was a strike, a workers' strike. Uh, so because the, um, uh, the company didn't want to pay the salaries to the workers, so they were on a strike and they occupied the premises and also a huge building next to the premises of the factory. It was a, print, a, print, uh, a printer. Um, so some radical activists in the city who were squatting in a different part of the city decided to go in solidarity with them. They joined the struggle and they said, OK, let's go to do something else. Uh, in addition to five bucks for the salaries, let's occupy, let's stay here, and let's open a social center, which is something else, uh, something beyond just dwelling in the place. And that became a fantastic space for uh, lunches, for talks, cinema, concerts, and politics. Lots of debates, political talks that uh, I was very young at that time, and I was really fascinated by everything going on. And then I realized there were hundreds of squats all over the country and also all over Europe, and of course, in other countries as well. And then I started doing some research and trying to collect materials, uh, pamphlets, uh, all kind of interviews and over the years. Um, uh, yes, until now, but I'm still writing on the topic. So uh, in how often is squatting in response to labor issues? How often is it? Because we spoke with Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis about their movie, The Take, back in 2004. And that was about well, an Argentine factory where the factory workers uh, squatted. They uh, occupied that factory and they actually got the factory running again. How often is squatting a response to labor? issues? Well, to be honest, uh, this is not that often in the last uh, two decades. Uh, it was more often in the past, especially in Italy in the 60s and 70s, and also in Spain in the late 70s. But uh, that was like a different movement. It was more the labor movement. And I also visited uh, some of these occupied factories in Argentina uh, every time I went there. And of course, it's something different. It's not exactly the same. Even in Argentina, you can find like uh, schools or libraries or sort of social centers, even within the factories. That's a very special case. But usually uh, most of the squads are mostly dedicated for living because people need a place to stay and they cannot afford to pay rent or to buy or they can combine something uh, between living space and meeting space or political spaces or countercultural spaces. So all of these mess can be together. But labor struggles, unfortunately, are not so usually so often connected with the squatting movement. 
but sometimes they are, of course. Yeah. So this is more of now than a housing movement than it is a labor movement as it had been in the past. You said that you have visited hundreds of squats. I would think that the police, that law enforcement, that the state wouldn't be very tolerant of squats. How difficult is it when you found out that there were hundreds of squats? Were you surprised that there were that many squats? And how good of a job do they do at staying below the radar of the local law enforcement? Well, um, it depends on every country uh, because legislation uh, varies a lot from country to country. So across Europe, there were for many years, for example, in the Netherlands and in the UK, in England and Wales, there were lots of opportunities to remain for years and years in a, in a squad uh, because there were many uh, loopholes in the law that allow people to stay and to uh, go, go to court and claim the, the building back and claim for adverse possession and all this stuff. So sometimes it was not that um, dangerous, let's say. But of course, even in these countries with this uh, legislation, favorable legislation until 2010 and 2012, uh, even there, uh, there were many evictions. And of course, uh, with a lot of repression, very heavily handed by the police. So this is something that once you are in the struggle, you have to accept that it can happen at any time. But even in places like Spain or Italy or Greece, where squatting is completely forbidden because it's against the law, against private property, principles, and all this, even here, uh, sometimes there are squats for more than 20 or 30 years of life. So most people know that uh, threats of eviction and attacks by the police can happen, but they, they usually uh, have hints about the the legal procedures and about many things going on in the political environment so they can predict more or less that something is going to happen and then it's a matter of resistance or of strategies how people decide to fight back or just leave the place if they don't want to get uh, charges or whatever but there are many cases if i think that's the most interesting thing that is it's not easy to say okay this is just a battle against police or against uh, property owners or against corporations or against the state because sometimes premises are state-owned. But it's something else. It's, something, it's, it's more about building up movements that practice radical politics and a radical application of the city. And then they uh, are able to, to offer these spaces for many groups, many social movements, many people, many users who become politicized in these spaces. I know that you were just saying that there are varied messages and uh, different squats can have different strategies and different approaches. But uh, you also write that other uh, scholars and activists joined your squats and together we ran a seminar in four different squats over a couple of years. We ended up writing a collective book using the edited transcripts of those meetings. The purpose was to reach a wider readership beyond the squatting scene, but the intense experiences we all went through in the 2011 uprisings, known as the 15M movement overwhelmed that endeavor. This is what was also known as the Indignados movement and was viewed eventually as a precursor to the Occupy movement, which first sprung up in Europe before the pivotal squat protest at uh, Occupy Wall Street, not because it was the first or biggest, but because it was an occupation in the heart of the financial capital of the world. What is, I know that, again, I know that they have varied messages, 
but is there a common intended message that squats have when it comes to sending a message to capitalists or about capitalism? Well, yeah, um, that's what I, I always assume that was something in common about all these experiences of squatting. That, of course, it's a, it's a challenge to how uh, cities are managed, how cities are sold and bought, and how cities are planned. So I think this is a protest against the, the capitalist city, for sure. Then there are many ways of uh, conveying this message. And some people just prefer to focus on uh, living spaces because they think this is the, the most urgent issue. And, and for them, for many squatters who just occupy empty apartments or empty houses, uh, their main purpose is to get access to, uh, to a home. So in case there are possibilities of access to social housing, uh, let's say that sometimes we can interpret this as a not very radical message because it's mostly about satisfying or meeting their urgent needs. But it's not always the case because at the same time they are protesting, they are mm, practicing that action and they are questioning why these properties are empty and why there are these criminalization against the squatters because they are just using a space which is otherwise used for speculation and for profit making. So on the other hand, when you open the space you occupy for different purposes, it's a different kind of protest because it's not just about the claim of the space you are occupying. It's also about claiming more spaces and more open spaces for everyone who is protesting in the city. I mean, uh, environmental movements, feminist movements, uh, people protesting against prisons, the, all kind of uh, labor struggles as well. So they find uh, a sort of uh, combination or mixture coalitions uh, and joining forces in these places. So I think in that case, the, the, the questioning of the city, of the capitalist city, is also a practice, a direct performance of appropriating the city and claiming the right to the city for all those who are excluded, especially if they live in the peripheries of the city. So that's why uh, squads at the city center, uh, at least in my view, are so important. You write that an extended version of a paper that you wrote for your dissertation based on new empirical status or analysis was released as a book in 2002, publishing in Spanish and with an independent house was tougher than imagined. The topic was not that attractive for the mainstream debates related to urban studies and social movements. And you add that your 2002 book and an ensuing edited book in 2004, also in the Spanish language, sold out and were very popular among activists, but hardly had repercussions in academia. What does that tell you about squatting? What does that reveal to you about squatting or about the about academia that is interested in social movements when it seemingly ignores squatting while it is incredibly popular with activists? What does that what does that tell you about the study today of social movements? Well, it was a very tough lesson for me because uh, I was a start in my academic career. And I expected much more repercussion in academia about all these studies. But unfortunately, I think there are many barriers in academia and there are many standards of the way you have to write, the, the journals where you have to publish, the, the style of writing and the kind of topics as well. So 
I remember my first book was in a, not only independent, but also an anarchist uh, publisher. And apparently to be close to anarchism or sympathetic to anarchism was something considered as a taboo, uh, I guess. So it, it was really tough to, uh, to convince people, to uh, engage people in this kind of discussions. At the same time, you had to move from one university to another, so it was a uh, very precarious um, academic position always. But then I decided that it was not only my academic interest, it was also a political and social interest. And that's why I continue doing these seminars and, and meetings and debates within the squads for many years until I left Spain in 2010. The situation was some, somehow unsustainable economically. But uh, I'm still happy that uh, that, was, that was possible. And at least I think is, that's the purpose of our, our academic writing is to reach people and to reach uh, activists and to reach everyone who can be interested in a specific and, and crucial topic in politics. To me, was the most important thing. But of course, this book that now we are commenting today is a bit more academic because in the last years I had plenty of time also to write a few academic articles. I still feel that they, they have an, a political purpose, just not only to illuminate what's going on on uh, this movement and all the messages and all the practices and the contradictions as well, uh, the limitations as well, but also to uh, indicate uh, what kind of positive things, positive achievements the movement made um, from an anti-capitalist perspective. And this is still one of the main drivers of why I'm persisting in academia and writing and publishing about this topic. You were mentioning the contradictions, and you write about that in your book. What are the most common contradictions that you did experience while visiting and doing your research on squats? <laughs> well, that's also a difficult thing, but perhaps in this kind of uh, movements, radical movements, sometimes there is some reluctance to engage with academics, uh, even if you are an activist, or I was also squatting uh, different places all over my life, and, and, and being a regular visitor uh, to many squats, but sometimes there is this distance from academia that, well, there is nothing there that can be beneficial to us. This is the message that sometimes you can hear. Um, I think this is problematic, uh, because this, um, this leads to a lack of reflection, of a strategic and political reflection, not only about your own specific case, but about movements uh, across the city, movements across the continent or across the country. And this is quite important. I think we need to join forces and we need to unite movements uh, and see the obstacles and see how to overcome these obstacles. And this is why I believe that uh, academic writing can help. But on the other hand, uh, there is no perfect movement. I mean, uh, in a squatting, for example, you see that some experiences are very short-term, so they are evicted very quickly. And they don't have time enough to develop, uh, to develop a political discourse or a political practice in the local environment. So this is quite sad. Uh, and this is basically due to the powerful enemies that they have to fight. Uh, sometimes squads are not so open to other movements or they don't even uh, cooperate with each other. So we also observe that there are splits or fragmentations within the movement 
for different reasons. Uh, I think the case of Paris that I mentioned in one of my fieldwork uh, notes is quite illustrative of these splits, for example. So, because, for example, artists go in one direction and residential or housing activists go in a different direction and more autonomous or anarchist activists go in a different direction. So I think this also is a limiting aspect of the movement. That's something that is important to reflect. Um, and of course, uh, perhaps if I, if I may, um, a final thing is that sometimes when squats are legalized, there are some detachment from the practice, from radical practices of squatting or autonomous uh, politics. So this is something which is very often mentioned by everyone. We are speaking with sociologist Miguel A. Martinez. He is author of Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Miguel is professor of sociology at the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University in Sweden. He was previously affiliated with the City University of Hong Kong and the Complutense University of Madrid. Since 2009, Miguel has been a member of the activist research network Squatting Everywhere Collective. Find out more about Miguel at Miguel Angel. Martinez.net. Who squats, Miguel? I think that there is a stereotype that most people have that if somebody is a squatter, then they must be some sort of young person who is from the far radical left. So who squats? And is there such thing as a far right wing squat? <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone can squat. It's true that young people from the far left, uh, are the most frequent squatters and users, at least in Europe. But once you squat, what I notice every time I was squatting is that uh, people from all ages, all conditions, all kind of interests and backgrounds join the squat. A different thing is who are the main activists within a squat. Um, and another, another is aspect is the, the issue of the, the purpose of the squat. So when it's about housing, for example, you see a wider range of people, families with children and all kinds of people who are basically poor, migrants, and single mothers, etc., etc. So it's quite difficult to say in squatting is just about young people. And I think this is not fair and this is not true. So it's important to distinguish uh, movements in each city according to purposes and according to the attraction of different publics to the squat. That's the main thing. And your second question, sorry, was about... Oh, no, actually, I, I was wanting to ask you about uh, something else, because one of the things that you, you mentioned is that housing is criminalized in Europe, in many parts of Europe. How is housing criminalized? Because I, the reason, because I, I was asking you if there is such thing as a far right, com, or far right squat. Oh. So I was wondering if that is why housing is being criminalized. Is it because criminals are being attracted to squats, or in general, how is housing being yeah. criminalized? Well, there, there are two issues here. So, on the one hand, uh, fascist squats or um, right wing squats. Uh, uh, were a relatively new phenomenon in Europe. They started in Rome, in Italy, and, and we saw a few more in Germany and Spain. But to be honest, this is not a, the, the general practice. It was, they were very isolated practicing. In fact, now in Italy, the, this group of the squatters 
with the name Casa Pound of fascist squatters, they became they established a political party which is completely at odds with the uh, uh, contrary to the practice of most squatters all over Europe. So I think we cannot generalize about that. Of course, there are also criminal practices in terms of mafias, people who are occupying houses for selling their keys or for subletting. And, and these are basically criminal gangs and quite dangerous sometimes. But again, this, this, they don't represent at all uh, what the squatter movement is, which is more public, more outspoken, more clearly confrontative, disruptive, and engaging people in uh, grassroots politics. So it's a completely different phenomenon that I like to separate very much from squatter movements. And then the issue of criminalization, I think is quite important because, of course, squatting is usually about something illegal or at least unauthorized. So it seems that sometimes the property is not very clear, so then it's not clear that you are um, doing something illegal because the property has to be established and clarified. But sometimes it's obviously an illegal practice because all the legislation and the criminal legislation goes against you. So the thing is that it, a, it was a long process. It was a historical process. Squatting empty properties was not always an illegal practice or it was not always a criminal offense. So it's something that was increasingly being more and more criminalized in most countries for different reasons. It's difficult, it's hard to explain right now. But basically the idea is that in the past there were more opportunities for squatting according to the legal frameworks because there were these adverse possessions possibilities because the, the, it was not a criminal offense, it was just a minor offense according to the civil legislation or so on and so forth. So the thing is that most countries became more and more strict and decided to persecute the squatters because at some point, I guess, they realized this was a dangerous movement and uh, the financial corporations and financial businesses wanted to exploit much more these opportunities in, in cities. And they found squatters as one of their enemies because they were using these uh, empty premises. So some of the part of the explanation has to do a lot with this increased uh, tide of financial, real estate financialization of cities and housing. Uh, in that sense, I think squatting, even without noticing in the beginning somehow, they were fighting, they were early risers in fighting these financial powers uh, globally. So that's quite remarkable from my perspective. Yeah, that the commodification of housing and neoliberalism leads to the kind of changes that, lead, that cause criminalization of squats, cause criminalization of housing as a repercussion of that commodification of housing and neoliberal policies in Europe. Is there also then an increase in homelessness? Is homelessness a new phenomenon in, in Europe that's related to the housing crisis it's facing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, some people who are not so familiar with the squatting tend to associate the squatting just with homelessness. And of course, there is an association, and it's true that the squatting is a, an, a material uh, opportunity for people to get rid from homelessness. 
But it's not just about homelessness. Ho- homelessness is on the rise and is an incredible, terrible sign of the failure of uh, welfare states and, of course, neoliberal policies. And this is something quite problematic. So, of course, homeless people are the first one interested, interested in squatting, but they, they need knowledge. They need support. They need legal assistance. They need um, a movement and activism. It's not just about entering a, a place. It's about defending the place. It's about claiming your rights for that place or claiming your rights for housing or claiming your rights for the city. So all together, all that mix makes the issue of squatting much more than about homelessness. But of course, in this situation where homelessness are also being criminalized because they are forbidden to stay from staying on the streets and forbidden from begging and forbidden from just existing, this is uh, a terrible sign of how even uh, welfare states in Europe are leading down, uh, going down in a in um, uh, something completely against their own history, against human rights. Um, and this conservative trend, I guess, is quite um, disputed by uh, movements such as the squatting ones. You argue squatters' opponents tend to base repressive measures on either weak or insufficient evidence, if not a very narrow-minded view of city life. How would you describe what you call squatters' opponents' very narrow-minded view of city life? Yeah, well, basically it's what you said. is commodification, is money just for profit. Uh, cities for profit, uh, uh, that's what I mean. <laughs> um, this, and also cities for tourists and cities for non-citizens. Cities for people who have no say in what, how the city should be planned, how the resources should be distributed, uh, what are the rights of those who live in the city, not just because they are nationals or citizens according to these outdated legislations. So everyone who is in the city has rights. And this is something that uh, movements such as squatters are really uh, disputing and challenging and trying to uh, provoke a debate on that. By doing this practice, by perhaps that's my view that unless you do these radical actions, it's quite difficult to convince the power holders that they are uh, leading us or taking all us in that terrible direction of uh, life only for money in cities, which is completely unacceptable. I would imagine that squats would, in general, have a bad impression. I don't know why. I just think here in the United States, uh, anybody who is homeless is condescended to, is looked down upon. So I wouldn't doubt that any kind of squat whatsoever here in the United States, people would not like whatsoever. And they would be very upset about it. And have there's a very bad impression of uh, homelessness and this kind of organizing that's out outside of what would be regular organizing. How often, though, do squatters' beliefs and approaches to living, how often do they have an impact on the way that their non-squatting neighbors live? Can, say, a communal squat lead to others in the area to consider or adapt communal approaches of their own despite not squatting? Or, or, or are they just hated? Are the squats just hated, or do people learn from them? Well, you have both. Um, sometimes it's, it takes uh, 
a slow process of convincing and showing your will and your practices and your intentions so and to approach people and to invite people to join your activities so i don't think squatting is about convincing everyone uh for being squatters themselves it's impossible because there are no spaces for everyone to squat so it's more about creating a movement and joining radical politics altogether so i think there are many chances and and i noticed that i think there are evidence from my own experience that you can attract uh, a great deal of neighbors to be sympathetic, to support, and to join the activities in the squad, and even your campaigns, or even yeah, the houses that are squat for living purposes. But on the other hand, it's also true that sometimes squatters are questioning the private property system in general. So many people who are investing, who are buying properties, they feel that the squatters are questioning their own lifestyle, and they are questioning everything they believe in. So at that point, it's quite difficult because they are possibly the first enemies of squatters. They don't want the squatters in their own area, unless they notice that there are so many other flaws in the area, many other um, deficiencies that the squatters are also discussing, and they can join their campaigns, and in that case, they become allies. But of course, there is impo it's impossible to predict this. And that's why every decision uh, about the building where you squat is quite, it sh should be taken in a very careful manner by understanding a bit the history and the place and the people around the neighborhood, uh, the property issues. And then it depends on luck, of course, of all these factors together. You mentioned earlier that what squats generally want is autonomy. What do squatters want autonomy from? Uh, sorry, can you repeat again? I didn't understand. What, understand well. I'm sorry, that's okay. What is it? What is it that squatters want autonomy from? You write about the role that the oh. notion of autonomy played right. in the urban politics of the squatters' movements across human, uh, Europe. So, what do they want autonomy from? Yeah. Well, um, this chapter in the book, which is called Autonomy from Capitalism, um, has an answer. But I, we, and this answer has to do a lot with many struggles, with labor struggles, with feminist struggles, with urban struggles all over the decades, at least the last four decades. So this is one thing. And, and I guess there is an underlying anti-capitalist sentiment and anti-capitalist uh, direction of many of these autonomous movements. But on the other hand, it's also true that uh, autonomy can be predicated in different ways. For some people, autonomy is just autonomy from the state. They don't want any relationship with the state. They don't want legalization. They don't want subsidies. They don't want uh, regulations from the state, etc. So sometimes this is a specific form of autonomy that is not necessarily anti-capitalist, but it, it could be too. Um, some, sometimes, as I express also, as I argue in this chapter, is that autonomy has this feminist uh, background in which people decide to be autonomous from all forms of, of oppression and all the subjects of the groups who are the oppressors. So in that, in that sense, in order to get emancipation, to, to get liberation, you need at least temporarily 
to be completely independent and autonomous from all these structures. And that's problematic because uh, even in the squatters' movements, uh, many women felt that they needed their own women and female uh, feminist squad because there was a lot of sexism uh, also uh, within the movement. And that's something that the movement needs to realize and need to fight back. And I totally support this kind of autonomous, uh, autonomist uh, perspective. So uh, to me, uh, a clear lesson from this past of autonomous uh, experiences all over Europe is that uh, formal organizations and um, political parties and corporations and state regulations are not necessarily good. <laughs> and in general, it's better to be independent from them in order to, uh, to fight them and to uh, question all the destruction that they are creating. So in that sense, autonomous uh, movements always stand for uh, horizontality, assembly organization, bottom-up and grassroots organization, and all the people who are oppressed or feel oppressed should take decisions on their own instead of just relying on broader or national-wide organizations. And I think this is one of the good strengths of uh, autonomous movements. Um, most quarters um, are more or less uh, enticed by this ideology, but it's not always the case. For some people, it's not so explicit, or they prefer a more classical uh, view of anarchism, or they don't, uh, they don't support, or they, they are not guided by this uh, sort of more structured ideologies. They prefer just the practice of radical action and self-organization, which is also fine, too. You write, authorities and power holders exert their influence over squats to suppress, regulate, or prevent the extension of squatting. To what degree does the state see squats as a threat to their power? And not, and are squats challenges to the state? Well, for the state, squatters are basically uh, challenging their authority because the state is regulating land use, is regulating uh, licenses and permits to use houses because they, they get also taxes and profit for the construction business. So squatters are basically uh, circumventing this system and because there is a reason, because people feel they are homeless, homeless because people feel they cannot afford, because there is a lot of exploitation, and people feel they are poor, and they want more of that. So they really challenge the state because of their condition and because they want a different world. So it's completely normal that state authorities feel that this is a threat. A different issue is how the state deals with the squatters, because if squatters are a good threat and a huge threat, then the state cannot suppress them immediately. They have to negotiate, they have to compromise, or they have to tolerate somehow the existence of the movement, especially if the movement is not going to change the whole society all of a sudden, because it's only a few properties which are usually occupied by movements. So in that sense, uh, state authorities can be also very strategic, and movements are also strategic given these situations. But in some cases, I mention very often the case of uh, Denmark, in particular Copenhagen, 
with the just with the exception of Christiania, in which in a few years the movement was completely smashed and almost disappeared. But of course, just before this heavy repression of the movement, the state was legalized in a few cases and was offering uh, some housing opportunities for many others. And then uh, Christiania remained at this particular spot until recently, which was also dismantled and forced to become private uh, owners. They, they were forced to, to buy the properties. But that happened after uh, almost 50 years of occupation, which is also quite outstanding <laughs> from my perspective and quite positive. So is the revolution already happening and it's happening within the squatting movement? It started with, I wouldn't know if this is necessarily where it started. People could say it started with the Zapatista uprising and the implementation of NAFTA and the begin not the beginning, but the uh, exaggeration of globalization. But, I mean, you look at the Indignados, the 15M movement, then you look at the uh, Occupy movement, and you look at the zone of defense movement that's happening around Europe and the Nuit Debout uh, movement that happened in uh, France. Are all these revolutions or uprisings that seem to maybe outsiders uh, as disconnected, are these all part of the same revolution that is a housing revolution that is now embodied in squats? Well, unfortunately, I don't see a revolution. (laughs) I think many revolutionary moments or revolutionary or revolts, uprisings, um, I have to admit that in these circumstances, the squads are quite useful, quite valuable resources, infrastructures. Somehow, sometimes in squads, you feel revolutionary activities all the time, and you feel a revolutionary environment, but not in all the squads. We, we cannot be so uh, optimistic because this is not reality. Sometimes the squads are just providing services to the, to the people around and culture, sports, meeting places, uh, community gardens, uh, music um, space or concert space, and so on and so forth. But this is not necessarily a revolution. It's just an alternative. It's an alternative economy, an alternative milieu, uh, an alternative society, and an alternative politics, which is also quite important for creating a revolution. So I think there are seeds of revolution in a squad, and sometimes they are crucial infrastructures for revolutions and for uprisings, as we noticed in Madrid, as you mentioned. It was, for me, an incredible discovery uh, at that time, because the the whole squad was filled by people uh, who were completely new to politics and to the occupation of the the Plaza Mayor, the main squad of the city, and all the time demonstrating. And they basically... uh, share the revolutionary insights with our revolutionary insights uh, from within the squad. But that was completely uh, unpredictable. It it happened, and and it was quite uh, important. But then, uh, of course, it also vanished after a few years. But the squads are still there. So even when revolutionary moments or important uprisings take place, uh, a squad can be a more material, uh, solid, um, enduring, enduring um, space for providing and creating these prefigurations of a possible, a better world and a revolutionary, a post-revolutionary situation.
I've got one last question for you, Miguel. We've been speaking with sociologist Miguel A. Martinez. He is author of Squatters in the Capital, Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Miguel is professor of sociology at the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University in Sweden. He was previously affiliated with the City University of Hong Kong and the Complutense University of Madrid. Since 2009, Miguel has been a member of the activist research network Squatting Everywhere Collective. That's SQ. E-K. You can find out more about Miguel at MiguelAngelMartinez.net. One last question for you, Miguel. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write the hot issue for the decision makers is why they prosecute those who find an affordable means to house themselves while there are abandoned empty apartments and a scarcity of social housing. According to figures collated by The Guardian, more than 11 million homes lie empty across Europe, enough to house all of the continent's homeless twice over. There are 4.1 million homeless across Europe, according to the European Union. Here in the U.S., Miguel, we have approximately 554,000 people who are without homes and one and a half million vacant homes. What does it say to you about a society that has a surplus of housing yet still has people who do not have and desperately want and need a home? What does it say to you about a society that tolerates homelessness while having abundant amounts of housing? Well, to me, this is a criminal society. I think it's completely unacceptable. Uh, And it's also a sign of uh, how capitalism doesn't care at all about uh, waste and about overproduction and about production that uh, doesn't meet the needs of people. So unless we take over the means of production and we take over the, uh, the state functions, it's almost impossible to change this thing. So I don't think this is acceptable. It's completely inhumane, and it goes against all human rights and all basic understanding of a civilized society. So first of all, something should be done in this respect. So all people, all homeless people uh, should be housed. Uh, all people should enjoy the right to housing in decent conditions and decent and um, good locations and good quality housing and we need to distribute resources in that direction so uh, in the meanwhile if this is not possible i think uh, squatters and all kind of movements of resistance will challenge this and we uh, and will discuss it and, and will present this as something which is completely against any rationality so I think I'm on that side, um, and I'm not totally against of uh, good housing policies. So I think they can contribute well, and this is something we need. But I don't see a goodwill by politicians of most countries to solve this situation. But of course, there are exceptions everywhere. And in some places, the vacancy rate is much lower. In some cases, like in Spain, it's absolutely high, and, and this is unbearable. So people should do something to fight this. Miguel, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. Uh, Thank you so much for introducing us to the squatters movement. I really appreciate it. This was very enlightening for me. And uh, expect me to bug you in the future to have you back on the show because I would love to follow up and continue our discussion on squatting with you. So thank you very much for being on our show this week. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 
Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, on October 21st, 1966, 53 years ago, a giant hilltop slag heap outside a coal mine in southern Wales, saturated and liquefied after several days of heavy rain, suddenly collapsed and flowed downhill, striking to the village of Aberfan which is weird because I'm an Aber fan of the Welsh heavy metal band Slagheap. The collapse happened in the morning just as children were beginning their day in an elementary school situated in the path of the landslide and where better to put a slag heap than uphill from an elementary school. The school building was buried in a deluge, deluge, deluge of shale, gravel and other debris, debris. Debris and the loose, unstable material made the rescue effort dangerous. A total of 116 children were killed, most being crushed or suffocated. 28 adults also died, including five teachers at the school. Back in 1966, Wales, when parents were asked, What about the children? the answer was apparently, I don't know, put them over by the slag heap. In Rotten History on October 22nd, 1877, 142 years ago, in the worst mining accident in the history of Scotland, what is with Britain in mining disasters? In the worst mining accident in the history of Scotland, an explosion at the Blantyre, Blantyre Colliery killed 207 coal miners, including an 11-year-old boy. And kids always die in these British mining disasters every freaking time. The blast was attributed to the use of open flame lamps by some workers in the mine and to an inadequate system of ventilation in the mine shafts because capitalism. Most of the mine workers were Irish men brought in to replace the original Scottish employees who had been fired the previous year after striking for higher wages because of the mine's poor safety conditions. Did I mention capitalism? The mine workers lived in company housing and soon after the disaster the widows and children of the dead employees were all evicted. Now there's your root of all evil showing its true colors. Less than a year later Another accident at the same mine claimed the lives of six more mine workers. The year after that, another 28 men were killed in a third accident at the same mine. And I'm sure their bosses thought every miner who died was greedy for wanting more money, lazy for not working harder for what little they got, and cowards for not wanting to work in unsafe mines. And when those miners died, their families were forced from their homes too. It's this kind of history that makes you wonder, why has it taken so friggin' long to come up with a better system than a capitalism based on resource exploitation and the burning of fossil fuels? I mean, come on already. Finally in Rotten History, on October 23rd, 1958, 61 years ago, a coal mine, good God, not another one, a coal mine near Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, suffered an underground earthquake probably brought by on by seismic stress from mining activity half a mile below the surface and if you don't mind i'm going to change that probably to definitely when the tremors were felt at ground level rescue teams rushed down into the mine shafts to assist survivors they found that some parts of the mine especially side sections branching off the mine shafts had caved in trapping mine workers who never had a chance and i'm not sure if they never had a chance because of the mine collapse or they never had a chance because 
they were mine workers to begin with. The rescuers did dig out some survivors, including one group of miners who managed to stay alive for almost two weeks behind a wall of collapsed rock, which most assuredly led to the miners having undiagnosed cases of PTSD. Life must have really sucked in 19th century Britain. 99 mine workers were rescued, but another 25 were dead. It was the second mining accident in two years at the Spring Hill coal mine. And the rescue effort attracted a rush of media attention, and not a single selfie. One miner, Maurice Ruddick, who was among who was known among the men for his singing voice, had kept a group of seven survivors cheered up for more than a week underground by singing pop and folk songs. He briefly became a celebrity, and Governor Marvin Griffin of Georgia, the state in the U.S., sought to grab some publicity by offering him and his companions a vacation at a fancy resort in Georgia. Oh, it's so nice and kind and charitable. It's really nice. This Governor Griffin might be my favorite governor of all time. Wow, must have been a really good guy. But when the governor learned that Ruddick was black, oh, I forgot, the governor's from the United States. He said Ruddick would have to be segregated from the other miners. He serenaded. The other miners were about to turn down the governor's offer, but Ruddick agreed to the Jim Crow restrictions so that his colleagues wouldn't miss out on a free vacation. It's this kind of history that makes you wonder why it has taken so friggin' long to come up with a better system than a capitalism based on racism, immorality, a complete lack of ethics, and an utter disregard for humanity. I mean, come on already. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Live from Hangover Country. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's two-hour live streaming This Is Hell? Tuesday, beginning at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time here at thisishell.com. Uh, right now, it's just Max Cerngast, so we're going to see what's happening next. I've had a couple people booked, and I've uh, not heard from them in a while, so uh, we'll see. But we definitely got Max. Uh, Max is going to be talking about what he sees as fascism taking place in Turkey, and we'll find out about all of his charges being dropped last month. And what about our Wednesday live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning? I'll be talking with Tad DeLay, author Tad DeLay, about his book, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Yeah, the uh, evangelical discussion we had with Adam Kotzko, I really enjoyed. Then we got a, had a listener, Calvin, suggest Tad DeLay's book, so he's going to be on to talk about his new book on white evangelicalism. Again, that is going to be on Wednesday. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on the bar downstairs from this here studio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. We want to thank our guest this morning, Miguel A. Martinez, author of Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. You can find out more about Miguel at miguelangelmartinez.net. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ronaldo Magaldi for his work on Rotten History. Thanks to Alex, of course, for producing the show. And this week's Hangover Cure is Chili... Cheese cho- toast. Chili cheese toast. I almost said something else entirely wrong. That would have been disgusting and horrible. Uh, all right. So till next time, I guess. Should I just do the regular out with uh, Wesley? Is that what you want to do, Alex? Yeah, I got it lined up. All right. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, thinking on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.